Hi, I'm Todd Nathanson. And I'm Lena Morgan. And if you're feeling sinister, this is Song vs. Song. We have uh, let Lena get back on her indie shit today. We, you picked this one without clearing it with me, and I just, we were going to roll with it. I think it's a good matchup. We are doing Bell and Sebastian's Another Sunny Day versus Camera Obscura and their song Lloyd, I'm Ready to Be Heartbroken. Lena, are you ready to be heartbroken? I mean, I've been heartbroken many times, so why not? All right. Let's just let's just play the greatest hits. <laughs> Break my heart, Tad. All right. Well, we do have a third person in the room today. Our resident indie rock guy. We have Andrew Underberger from Billboard magazine in the studio today. Say hi, Andrew. Oh, uh, what's going on, Todd? Glad, glad to be invited on for Sweeps Week here. Camera Obscura versus Bell and Sebastian. Let's, let's go. <laughs> That's oh, it. The, lo- the lowest vote count in the history of the show. I, I hoped it would be. I wasn't sure that y- y- y'all actually got there, but that, that's very exciting. I, I hit retweet on that promote uh, tweet button quite a bit to get it up yep. to where it is. We all uh, tried. Well, <laughs> I mean, were made. it's like all indie rock. We get less votes, but the votes we get are much more intense. The people who care very, very much care. For a certain subset of uh, this audience, this is going to be the greatest uh, episode of all time. But you picked this one, Lena. Why did you pick this? So the reason why um, is because it's nice out. And I often associate the these songs and this kind of music with like when it gets nicer out. There's something about like rolling down the windows and playing this kind of music while you're taking a long drive. Uh, that's part of it. But the other part is, you know, we covered the the Grammys. Mm-hmm. Uh, you remember there was uh, that artist that was up for best new artist, Japanese Breakfast? Yeah, I like Japanese Breakfast. Well, you know, um, I don't know that Japanese Breakfast would be Japanese Breakfast without Camera Obscura and thereby without Bell and Sebastian and then all the rest. So I think that the we were talking about that artist. We talked about how um, both of us really like Japanese Breakfast. Um, as it happens now, Japanese Breakfast like showed up. It was on the, the Tonight Show and was on the final episode of the season of Saturday Night Live with Natasha Leone as the host. So I kind of think that maybe music in this milieu is is having a comeback. So those are all the reasons. What is a... What is the connection? Is there like a specific connection between Japanese Breakfast and Camera Obscura? Well, she likes she likes Camera Obscura, and there's a there are songs of hers that I think if you listen, you can hear the influence. I can hear it. I, right. I know where you're coming from with that. Sure. Wow, because I, I kind of associated more with like the the synthy 2010s rock, like like Chiverches and bands like that. I mean, I don't know no. that there's not a lot of bands that just have one influence. I know. In, in, in the 2020s, <laughs> I'm just going to put it out there, which is a thing that we're going to have to. Talk about some. Oh, wait. And Chiverches are, are Scottish too, aren't they? And, and, and speaking of, of bands with extraneous V's in their name, <laughs> I, I was thinking a lot about the band uh, Always. Always, yes. Also very much influenced by this stuff. So I think that this has kind of been happening, I think, late 2010s into the 2020s. There is a little bit of this sort of twee influenced music making a comeback. I don't I mean, we're never going to go back to just. Straight twee. I don't think that there's a need to. <laughs> like, I wouldn't be like, thank goodness. I, twee I'm, is back. Twee's it's been, not dead. Yeah, twee and twee never left, perhaps. But yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it just influences a lot of things. But as of right now, it's, I, think it's, I think it happens to be influential on, on stuff I've been hearing. So, um, that being said, when you think of the word twee, if someone says twee to you, what is the first thing that you think of? 
I mean, is it Bell and Sebastian? I'm, it's way up there. I mean, like that's they are to Twee what like uh, the mighty mighty Boston's are to Ska. Like I'm, I'm. There are many others, but like none with the the reach. I, I know that you know there are other groups that predate them and sort of maybe even kind of were the progenitors of, of the sort of twee that we now come to associate with them. I certainly thought like they invented twee the same way I thought Nine Inch Nails invented industrial. <laughs> like, right, it's a good comparison. Yeah, it's not yes, true, we- but it it certainly felt true if you're not really versed in it. We all know who really started twee. It's the Smiths. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I don't, again, like, that's to me, if you're going to say twee, and like, they're not actually like the, obviously, because they're not, they're not specifically speaking a twee band, but there, I don't think there's twee without the Smiths. No, I always kind of assumed like Bell and Sebastian were uh, Morrissey without the Morrissey. Well, Stuart Murdoch, I mean, (laughs) an interesting character in, in his own right. Uh, if, if you're about to tell me some horrible things about Stuart Murdoch, please don't. No, I'll, there's interesting stuff about him. Um, uh, there, I'm sure there's. I'm sure if I dug into it, I'd find awful things. I don't. Well, you don't have to not, dig this into Morrissey. This has never been the podcast for that. No, no, no. I'm not. Interested. You don't have to uh, dig into Morrissey to find out bad things about Morrissey. That's true. Um, so don't tell so, me anything like that about Stuart Murdoch. Here's the deal: the Smiths, right? A popular band. Sure. Of some of some repute created a kind of music that is very jangly, very 1960s, little Mersey beat, like just kind of taking it in a, in, a, in a particular direction that people got really into. And so there's this word, not twee, but a, a kind of a similar word, another s- single syllable word that I associate with um, music from like, say like mid eighties to mid nineties and comic books from the mid eighties to mid nineties. And that word is zine. Zine. Yeah. Z I N E zine, like magazine. Yeah. 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 So to me, I always think of like, to me, twee is like the, is like the zine genre in a lot of ways, right? Like the little pamphlet that somebody like poured their heart out into talking about music that they liked, Mm -hmm. writing poems, drawing like weird art and just trying to spread around their school, their local community and stuff. Um, that was really the way that you'd sort of find out about like little tiny acts that were playing around your town or around your country or whatever. And it was the same thing with comic books, right? Like the zine is sort of how uh, like our crumb gets big and a lot of things like that, you know, like a lot of a lot of comic book artists and a lot of I think like smaller musicians found larger purchase in the cultural landscape because of the zine twee in particular, I think is birthed by Sarah Records. That's your act. That's your starting place. Uh, yeah, with, with the one band that I'm sure we're going to talk about uh, in particular. At Another some point sunny later. day. Another sunny day. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, I was thinking about it, like, 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 like Sarah Records is really, yeah, that, that, that's really ground zero. It's like that, that was to, to indie pop and to tweet kind of what like Death Row Records was to, to G-Funk or what, you know, No Limit Records was to, to New Orleans rap in the late 90s. That's sort yeah. of the hub for, for everything that we kind of come to eventually associate with tweet. Although there weren't really those sort of crossover acts that, I mean, especially in this country, this was going on very, very far away in the UK. And I, I'm sure, you know, there were people getting their import copies of the NME and like, you know, buying seven inches from the field mice on vinyl or whatever. But it, it wasn't really something that made a huge impact stateside. You know, Spin wasn't writing about, the, about these bands and they weren't making probably even 120 minutes or college rock. I mean, maybe some college rock circuits, but definitely not the scale that, the Smiths did before them and that Bell and Sebastian would do after them when they really came to be 
not just like one of the biggest cult bands of the sort of the turn of the century in the US, but also just like a, a very big band. Like we're, I, I didn't even totally realize until looking up, uh, doing a little research for this, this podcast that like around the time of the, of the Life Pursuit, the, the, the album that Another Sunday Day comes from, like they were selling out the Hollywood Bowl. Like they were, they were playing like shows to 18,000 people with the, the you know, Royal Philharmonic or whatever. Like they were legitimately popular band in this country. So they're sort of the, the, the feel-good breakout story from this moment, but it was sort of percolating for a decade before that. And yeah, Sarah Records was kind of ground zero for all of it. Yeah, like w- around like Y2K when I started like really digging into music and I was like, hey, new cool internet friends, how do I become an indie rock snob? And they were like, well, you got to get into Bell and Sebastian. Like that is like the band that will, right, yeah. like you, you do not want to go into college not knowing who Bell and Sebastian are. Like, are you going to be left out of everything? That's where all the cool kids are hanging out. See, and I didn't know any of this stuff. I all I knew was, you know, I did. I mean, I hadn't no. My finger was far from the pulse when I was in high school. I listened to ska and punk, and when I got into college, uh, I met a girl, and she had in her parents' basement a little box, and inside of the box was I shudder to think how many of the Sarah Records seven inches. A fortune's worth. Um, now I'm. Sh- I can't even imagine what they're worth at this point. But um, I, I, we became really close friends, and she sort of turned me onto that music. What would have been like around like ninety nine, two thousand, which was well after the fact. This is like after Sarah Records was no more. There was sort of like a follow up um, record label, so to speak, that had a lot of the same artists under different band names and stuff. And that's kind of the thing to know, like about Twee music is that it's, uh, like a lot of indie music, extremely incestuous. Um, I think it's really, there's a million reasons why I think a lot of those artists didn't blow up. What part of which is that how does one listen to Sarah records? Well, you have to own the, the seven inches, right? Like they were releasing these little seven inch records inside of these sleeves that were covered in words. Like they were record slash zines. That was the whole pitch. Um, totally independent. Like nobody's like really making money off of anybody else. It's just completely self-owned, right? But one of the things that I always thought is kind of limiting for them is that a lot of the people from one band would then cross over and be at least one part of another band. So like if you were to listen to Another Sunny Day and then listen to The Field Mice or Blue Boy uh, and I said, hey, can you tell me which one is which? Even if you were a huge Sarah Records fan, you might get tripped up because they sound really fucking yeah, similar. And, and it wasn't like a star-making sort of genre either. Like they didn't have big personalities in terms of the individual members. And I'm sure there was personalities in terms of in-band drama, but there wasn't like star. There wasn't a Morrissey. There were, I mean, Stuart Murdoch. I mean, you know Stuart Murdoch really, really like Don Sebastian, but and you might you might know his voice, but you might not know what he looks like or anything like that. But what, what did help all these bands, what kind of helped indie pop sort of like live up to the pop side of the name is that the aesthetic is very consistent uh, and that the aesthetic is not only consistent within the records, but it's also aesthetic across platforms. And so you can like you can be a Bell and Sebastian fan that also recognizes that sort of influence in like the movies of Wes Anderson. Uh, and you can sort of create a sort of commonality that way, even if you know the songs aren't literally using them, you can. You can recognize, oh, someone has this CD in their collection, so they probably also have these movies in their DVD collection or VHS collection, depending. They probably have, they probably dress a certain way. They probably have the same kind of literary references. Like it's a very similar sort of uh, touchstone, like, a set of touchstones that they use 
not only between bands, but uh, it basically can create an entire personality. Out of it. Bell and Sebastian did a whole soundtrack for a, a, a movie. Right. That's a Todd Solon's movie for me is like a very anti Wes Anderson kind of <laughs> filmmaker. Yeah. That, that, that might've been a chosen first perverse, uh, implications, <laughs> I guess. What's really interesting about that though, is that I often also think of Bell and Sebastian and Wes Anderson in the, in the same breath and yet have never worked together. That's true. There's yeah. no, there is technically no connecting lines. It's 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 like one of those shocking moments. It's like uh, when you realize that um, Pam Greer and Linda Carter never made a movie together, and you think, "How is that? How did the entirety of the 1970s happen, and that didn't occur?" Um, it's kind of the same thing. Like, how in the 2000s did Wes Anderson not have a movie that had Bell and Sebastian as the soundtrack? I don't know. I was Wild. about to say it was like maybe it's two on the nose for Wes Anderson. And I was like, well, never stopped him before. So. <laughs> True story. So Bell and Sebastian, uh, Stuart Murdoch, sort of the, you know, he's the guy, he's the front man. Um, he's from Glasgow, Glasgow. He's, um, he really liked uh, Thin Lizzy. He liked the Beatles. He really liked Yes. Real big fan of Yes. He was an eclectic fellow. Um, and he liked the Smiths, obviously. But this, but this thing happened to him pretty young in life, which is that uh, he he had a condition, um, which is chronic fatigue syndrome, which is like, it's interesting to think like what kind of illnesses get titled what, but like chronic fatigue syndrome, you say it now and you're like, so just what everybody has all the time <laughs> now. But, you know, it really basically was just that he was on his ass all the time. He was constantly in bed. If he got a cold, he'd be sick for like four months. And he spent a lot of time in the hospital. You know, he you know he wanted to be a lot of different things, including a musician. Um, but he had to like drop out of school, and so his life got put on hold for like seven years, right? Crazy long amount of time. But deep down, you know, he still had the one dream. The, the you know he like like a lot of us, he was a big record collector and he was a big music fan. So he was the kind of guy that would have, you know, the seven seven inches of of Sarah Records. I don't know if he actually did, but if he did, it wouldn't fucking surprise me. So he eventually gets to a point where he finally feels like, hey, I've got some people together. I want to I want to put some music together. And he's got the backing of another person who becomes very important in this story um, as far as this band and as far as the mainstreamification of this music insofar as it got mainstream. And that is a DJ named John Peel. So John Peel was like one of the most important purveyors of like indie music or like unknown music. He was the guy who would put stuff on the radio that no one was going to put on. So he was a huge tastemaker and influenced everybody in what they listened to. And he liked Bell and Sebastian right away. Um, from the very earliest records, the very first earliest stuff that eventually became their first record, Tiger Milk, he was really on board with that. And so that album came out mid-90s, like 96, I want to say, and was way more successful than it had any business being. It's a good record, but like it could have been just as quiet as the Sarah Records album had been, right? And also because um, Stuart Murdoch was another one of those believers in Don't Put the Single on the Record, He's one of those guys, which fair play, you're, you know, if you're an artist and that's how you want to do it, that's allowed. He could have been not successful. He, that they could have fallen into obscurity. Camera obscurity. <laughs> instead, <laughs> instead, they wound up being a pretty big success, exactly big enough that they then put out another record, which you referenced in the opening, Todd, yep. if you're feeling sinister, which is the very first record I ever heard of theirs, um, which 
interestingly, I, I listened back to it and I'm like, this, mo- this I don't rules. Know. I mean, it does, but like, it's my, it's still my favorite record of theirs personally. Um, I understand why people love over the Arab strap. That's, that's also a great album. Like basically like three albums in a row that were all hugely, hugely popular, but it's all this nineties era music. It's very quiet. It's very lo-fi. It's very bedroomy, but Stuart Murdoch's a good front man. He's very, he's very distinct, right? Like, the, what I was talking about with Sarah Records where like you're not going to recognize their like one band versus the other. You'd never mistake Stuart Murdoch for anybody else. I, like his voice, I think, is very recognizable. They have a very wimpy sound. Like I, I hear Stuart Murdoch's voice and I think this guy couldn't lift a pencil. One you were you, and you were essentially right for a while on account of the, the whole chronic fatigue thing. Yes. Um, but which I didn't know about. And maybe that's maybe that's a joke I shouldn't make. You're a bad person. Todd. Yes. No. Um. So yeah, they basically put out three albums that were all this sort of mellow quality. It's amazing listening to some of it. Like if you're feeling sinister, if you've never listened to it, great record. I love pretty much every single song on it, but I wouldn't be like, and here's the hit single that's going to make them one of the most famous bands on earth. That's an, that's an album. That's, you know what I mean? Like that's not a singles album. That's a, you put on the album and you just listen to it all the way through. And I think Boy With The Arab Strap is like that also. I was actually considering doing a Belly and Sebastian thing because I, I knew you're such a big fan, but I was like, man, what is their one song I would pick? I had no idea. So what happened was they basically started floundering around. There were some breakups, complications in the band. Uh, during this time, Stuart Murdoch started dating some lady of some sort. Uh, what was her name? Oh, right. Tracy Ann Campbell, the, the lead singer of Camera. Um, <laughs> I- <laughs> I had no idea about this. I I did not know that either. I I knew that he produced their first single, or at least their first big single, first when the John Peel started playing. I did not know that there was a romantic relationship there. There was. Uh, So there was some, again, you know, uh, I don't think we need to get into it because it doesn't really matter. Although I think that that stuff influences music. I always used to say the thing about Sarah Records is that like 90% of the songs on that were songs about like one person from another band breaking up with another person from another band. Like so much. The entire label was Fleetwood Mac basically. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All the time. They have a little bit of a, yeah, like a time where they're, they're struggling. They, there was this movie that they provided a soundtrack for that completely biffed. So they started to lose ground. And then all of a sudden they put out a record called Dear Catastrophe Waitress. And they get labeled sellouts by <laughs> their biggest fans. There is, there is a bit of that. Um, they even acknowledge that that's a thing that happened, but, um, like, like Amakuku is on that, uh, Piazza, uh, is on that. There's a couple really, like really popular tracks and you can start to hear uh, in particular the Thin Lizzy, um, influence that desire to be more jangly. And also I think it's important, um, and, uh, that's maybe you want to talk about this because now we're in the two thousands and independent music is shifting sizably. The, yeah, uh, this was definitely a, a really interesting time. For, and and it, it, it's funny for me to think about, because in my mind, the definitive Bell and Sebastian period will always be the period that you were talking about earlier. It's that Tiger Mill through, through our strategy. Yeah, period, nine, which, 96, 98. Yeah, which I wasn't, yes. I wasn't even, I was not like I was paying attention. I was 10 through 12 at that point. But, you know, when I started reading Pitchfork and then started caring about indie music at the beginning of the 21st century, these were the sort of landmark albums. Then they had a, you know, one or two that sort of flopped after that. And sort of, it felt like every other album they released after that would invariably can be compared to those first three, particularly Sinister. But the commercial prospects for this kind of music do change pretty dramatically over this time period because you have 
sort of a sort of indie explosion in the mid hands. It's not it's not like the, the sorry, the mid aughts, it's not like the grunge explosion of the early nineties where all of a sudden in the entire sound of popular music changes, but in 2004, you have hit singles by Modest Mouse and by The Killers and by Franz Ferdinand. Franz Ferdinand. Yeah, yeah. And, and you also have uh, the rise of emo, which is sometimes uh, more connected to, to pop punk and, and sort of that, that those circles, but is also st- sort of indie adjacent. Bands like Death Cab for Cutie, Jimmy Eat World to a certain extent. And then you have VOC, which sort of changes everything. Uh, and it, it sort of provides a kind of primetime pop of platform for a lot of these bands to it sometimes literally because they actually show up on the show as live performing musicians and sometimes more figuratively in terms of the soundtracks that you know they, they released a couple of soundtracks of volumes from the show and they had a lot of songs that were used in prominent places through big episodes and all of a sudden you have death cap for cutie like debuting in the top three of the albums chart and you have uh bands like the shins becoming mainstream propositions and so it, it didn't it didn't it's funny that like living through it I still felt like this was very much underdog music because, you know, well, it was big, but it wasn't as big as, uh, you know, uh, Nickelback or as big <laughs> as, you know, Rihanna or Beyonce or anything like that. Like it wasn't quite on that level. It wasn't this sort of seismic shift, but all, just the, 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 the commercial ceiling for all these bands started getting higher and balance faster, no exception. You know, it felt that big to me. Like yeah. all these, you know, the kind of music I was like, I was hearing it on top 40 radio. I was hearing the killers yeah. next to, uh, you know, Usher and Lil John, that was mind blowing to me. Even early two thousands, you can see like no, I mean I'm not. I'm trying to remember what, what if any radio play, maybe local radio, but like there's I don't just, know. To, to me, count. if I think if I think about something like yeah, so like the Strokes certainly count, I think to an extent, but like I think about like Interpol's Turn on the Bright Lights or Yankee Hotel fucking Foxtrot, like those are both two thousand two albums. Those are enormous game changers for just independent music in general. Because I thought that like way more people were aware mm-hmm. of those, even if they weren't getting a ton of radio play. And I think the other thing to keep in mind too is that once you're getting into that point, once you're in a, a post Napster world, like access to this music all of a sure. sudden explodes. So there's just you. They're literally like, do you want to get into Sarah Records? Well, congratulations. Go to LimeWire, and it's there. <laughs> right? You just download it instead of like having to be lucky enough to know mm-hmm. somebody who has a mixtape or has you know seven inches in the basement that's yeah. such a huge change and, and in terms of the mainstream rock was so barren for this kind of music the first couple of years of the decade you know when it was so dominated by new metal and pop punk and, and sort of louder bigger uh, stronger kind of muscular rock music to have I mean, it wasn't like rock became like a much more diverse place in the mid aughts it was still mostly you know sad white guys with guitars whatever but it, it, the, the fact that there was a little bit more emotional shading to the music was a big deal. The fact that there was a little kind of European artiness to some of the bands was a huge deal. Like the, then the fact that these bands were actually like, you know, they were moving up on festival venues. They were touring a lot better. Some of them were getting on the radio. Uh, yeah, it, it, it all felt like something that would have been pretty impossible. You know, you mentioned Interpol and Wilco, like you say, like those were enormous albums, but they didn't really have that sort of sort of mainstream impact outside of the, the the sort of New York pitchfork kind of indie world the way that you know the couple of Shins albums did or a couple of Death Cab albums did and Bell and Sebastian might not have even really been on that level but all of a sudden they were making the top half of the Billboard 200 with, with, with their new albums they were touring pretty respectable venues they were selling out the Hollywood Bowl and they were getting on major movie soundtracks like uh, you know the Piazza on the Juno soundtrack because I'm sure a lot the first time that a lot of people heard that band there are a lot of other sort of examples like that. And you just had more opportunities for those kind of crossover moments in the mid off than you did when Bell and Sebastian first came out. So even though those albums still kind of tower over their other albums for me, 
probably more people in total have heard the life pursuit than have heard uh, if you're feeling sinister. Certainly, they've heard Tiger Mother, you know, one of those kind of kind of B plus albums of theirs from that period. Yes. So I the the short version is I agree. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. But so so basically, what we get to is there's all this sort of groundswell. Bell and Sebastian starts to get pretty big with Dear Catastrophe Waitress. Like you said, I think the Juno soundtrack is a really big touchstone for them. That's a big that's a big move of the needle. And then a couple years later, they put out The Life Pursuit. That's 2006. That, to me, that album is so, like, I don't want to say sell-out-y because it's what they wanted to do. Like, it's not like Stuart Murdoch was like, I don't really want to be doing this. It's certainly the music he wanted to be making, but it was much more polished, much brighter, much more active and poppy. Um, and another sunny day to me, even though it was not like the big chart chopper in the UK. I don't think it was always, even a single. Like no, uh, but like I remember getting that album and that song just being like I instantly like every mixtape I I would put together another Sunday day would would go on it and if I look at Spotify it's one of the most listened to songs on Spotify so I can't have been the only person yeah I was really shocked at that it's like I I didn't expect it to have so like it's like number three or something like that way higher than anything off of their like peak period in 96 98 I wasn't expecting it to do so much better than like like Dylan the movies or the state I'm in or anything off of that is like it blew it away I think it like it in fact like the top three songs they have are all from the 2000s not the 90s Piazza is the most listened to on Spotify, which is. I, th- I thought it was Arab Strap. I'll, I'll check again. But, no, but, you're uh, right. It is Arab Strap. Correct. Yeah, I'm sorry. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. But, but in any event, I'm, I'm curious, uh, Todd, like, like while Lena's talking about this being like a huge sellout moment for them, like I, I didn't hear this album in real time. Like I knew, I knew some songs from it. I was, I probably listened to it honestly for the first time in preparation for this podcast. Full, but these all just felt like Don Sebastian songs to me. Like, and maybe it's just that they've gone kind of further in this direction since. But I, I remember there was one song off Dear Catastrophe Waitress, and it was Step Into My Office, Baby. That felt like a very big, hot moment for them. That, that, that felt like a jarring moment for them. Everything else from these two albums, to me, feels like a Bell and Sebastian song. Like, and, and Another Sunny Day in particular, like that, that feels almost like a prototypical Bell and Sebastian song to me. <laughs> yeah, like, it's like the, the platonic ideal of a Bell and Sebastian song. Yeah, and I, I, I do believe you, and I, I have vague memories of this being kind of derided at the time as, as, as sellout going pop, whatever. But it's funny to think about now when like the, what the links that any artists go to these days to quote unquote go pop, like it's pretty quaint. To think of this still very twee, very indie pop record being considered any sort of big gasp for the big time. Like that, that's, that's pretty crazy to me. Well, I, I hadn't actually listened to this album before uh, uh, Lena made us do it for the podcast. And to me, I was like, this is uh, the I, I don't I don't want to say like the least Bell and Sebastian, but like it's like the widest range of Bell and Sebastian songs that ever. It's kind of like their welcome interstate managers. It's mm. like they're doing like a lot of things on this versus. I don't know, like uh, Tiger Milk or something where like the, the first song, the last song and everything in between all kind of sounds like the same band. Yeah. Like, so the thing the thing to me that sort of stands out is that it's. So it was produced in California and it was produced by Tony Hoffer, um, who I would say, I'm trying to think like what's the most well-known thing he produced. I guess maybe it's Midnight Vultures, but like that kind of gives you, he did like Alphabetical by Phoenix and like, but like he's a, he's like, if, if I say to you, like the, the guy who did Midnight Vultures is going to do the, is going to produce the next Bell and Sebastian album. It's, it's a fair point. And that's pretty, that's pretty wild. Beck and yeah. Sebastian. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good that's a nice nice joke nice joke yeah 
Um, but yeah, so this album came out and I liked it. Yeah, I mean, like I wasn't sitting there going like, I don't know about this. Yeah. I, but I do remember people being kind of weird about it. And I do think that it was a little bigger. I think just like the the jangliness with the with the number of harmonies that were happening on another sunny day. Like it really, it's very nineteen sixties, but like it's writ so large. Large, I think that um, it it did sort of stand out to me at the time as being not unbell and Sebastian, but like just a like a a bigger sound for them on the whole. Okay, bigger than and, bigger sounds right to me. That sounds yeah, right. that's fair. That comes out, and it's kind of in the exact same way. Camera Obscura, who had technically been around also since the 90s, although they weren't really finding purchase in, in the cultural landscape until the early 2000s, uh, I think. They, yeah, so they basically kind of get to this place where they also kind of want to stretch out a little bit. And so they have um, Bjorn of Peter, Bjorn, and John come in and do arrangements on this album called Let's Get Out of This Country. And likewise, this is a little, there's more um, orchestral work, I think, some more piano work, because they had been largely kind of guitar focused. And again, like, I don't listen to it and go, man, that's not Camera Obscura, but it does feel bigger. And unquestionably, um, off of this album, you get what is their, to me, their biggest hit, which is the one we're talking about, Lloyd, I'm Ready to Be Heartbroken. Um, which is just, I remember, again, same thing. I remember hearing it the first time and just immediately being like, that's going to be on every mixtape for a while. Yeah, it's sort of a custom-made mixtape song. There's, there's kind of like a, a, a cute narrative hook to it. And you can kind of like, it's kind of like a conversation starter in a way. Like, you know, you know about this other song that's referencing and you know about this band's history and, and all this other stuff. It's sort of a, it, it, it's, it's a giver in that respect. You can put it on, and mixtape for somebody and they'll, they'll like it as a song, but you can also kind of, Oh, well, did you know this? Did you know that? Like it's, it's, it's a very, it's, it's certainly a bit of a music geek bait. Yeah. Like this is not just a Scottish indie pop song, which in your, in this country, you already got to be pretty deep to get into, but like it's a Scottish indie pop song about a Scottish indie pop song. That names it. Sure right <laughs> and I didn't realize this until I started doing research, but uh, you know, the other song we're discussing is also a reference to a pretty obscure, like an even more obscure band. Yes, are you ready to be heartbroken? Is the is the is the actual name of the song that it's referencing? Right, it's by um, Lloyd yeah. Cole. Yeah. Wait, crap! I can't remember who the and is. Oh, I want to say the, commo- the, the commotions, maybe. I think the commotions. Oh, I thought it was Commodores. Maybe I'm crazy, but I think I, that might actually be what it is. It's the commotions. Mm-hmm. It's not the Commodores. Are oh, you serious? It? I don't know, man. <laughs> Listen, you don't know. I was about to say the pharmacists, and I was like, no, who's that? Tell you, this, this is this is a great like uh, like fourth round of a five round pub trivia. Yeah, last year, I think. <laughs> Match yes. the right. twee front person to their their anonymous. Back <laughs> These songs, which are immediately and easily accessible in my mind, right? This is why this is a big part of why they're selected. You put them on, and like, there's no struggle trying to figure out like, should I like these songs or not? Like, I mean, I understand that there are people out there that just instinctually don't like this genre, but for the most part, they're very approachable. Um, they're the kind of songs that invite a lot of re-listening being put on mixtapes and stuff like that. And then on this extra level, there is also the fact that they are, yes, referencing other much smaller things within the genre. And Twee is kind of like that. Like, it's funny when I asked, like, what's the first thing that you think of when you think of Twee? I wish I could say that my answer is, of course, it's Sarah Records. I'm, I'm, I'm not a heathen. 
but it's literally the song Twee by Telecraft for me, just because it's it's just dumb and like it's it's a love song to the genre, but it's also kind of making fun of it, and so I always liked that. And that's from the two thousands. Yeah, I, I should also uh, give a quick shout out to the C eighty six compilation, which was like a cassette that came, I think, it came with copies of the NME maybe in nineteen eighty six, uh, and collected a lot of these sort of proto uh twee bands i think it was mostly called jangle pop back then but a lot of the, the bodines and uh the shop assistants bands like that that uh that were sort of the four forerunners for this movement uh and the wedding present of, the wedding present sure yeah and it, it, this, what, this kind of gave it a gathering spot for the first time and it, it's still a great compilation it's still definitely worth like a torrent or I don't know, song streaming these days but uh it, like a lot of the songs hold up really well and you can kind of see where a lot of this stuff comes from so there's a there's a thing that happens sometimes in this podcast. Uh, Todd, you're familiar with this as, as a concept. You know how like a lot of times we pick songs because they're really similar mm-hmm. or, or sometimes we'll even say they're effectively the same song. Correct. That's the best so, ones. So here's the thing about Another Sunny Day and Lloyd, Are You Ready to Be Heartbroken? They're almost that, but not quite. What What would you say is the main difference then? It's not so. All right, I. All right, I will tip my hand. I will say what the difference is, and then I will say the thing that I realized finally after <laughs> having listened to these songs forever. I said suddenly dawned on me what the deal is. But okay, so another sunny day has all of these great verses. Chorus never arrives. There is no chorus for another sunny day. It's just. I mean, there's there's like lead lines and stuff, but like it's mostly just verse and here's some harmonies and here's a little lead guitar, but there is no chorus. And Lloyd, are you ready here to be heartbroken? Is has verses, but like what you remember is the chorus. Yeah, I'm always a I'm always a chorus guy. So like we didn't ask which is your favorite, but for me, it's easily going to be Camera Obscura. And I wouldn't pick that pr- probably any other matchup between these two bands, but for me it is definitely camera obscura because I like a good hook and that is a solid hook. And you said the point where it was like, this may as well be all hook. I didn't realize that this was actually a song about being heartbroken. I thought it was a song about Lloyd and it's not. <laughs> yeah, so so I, I've heard this song probably estimate somewhere between 30 and 60 times in my life. Uh, I, I would consider it like a, a favorite of mine from that period. Uh, I would also choose it in this matchup. We'll talk more about that later, maybe, but uh mm. If you had printed out the lyrics, the non-chorus lyrics of the song and handed them to me on a sheet of paper and told me what song is this, I would need 5,000 guesses to get it right. Like, like, like no. at least. And my, my girlfriend, this is like straight up one of her favorite songs, period. Like, like in, in, our, in our group of friends, like you bring up this song, you're like, oh yeah, Lisa loves that song. You can be both better by now. I asked her, I was like, this is one of your favorite songs, right? So like, yeah. Uh, can you name a single word from this song that doesn't come from the chorus? And she thinks about it for a second. She kind of hums it to herself. And she comes up, uh, Crown Jewels. I think there's a Crown Jewels in the first line. <laughs> there, right is, there is. There is Crown Jewels in the first line. But no, certainly no full lines. And she, I think she, she, she tried a couple other words that I, I don't think were right. Like, it, it's, it's that kind of song where, and, and almost like by on purpose, I think, like the way Tracy Ann Campbell sings it is very kind of like, not, not quite slurred maybe, but it's definitely not overly enunciated. The production, too, it's overpowering. Yeah, the production is overpowering. There's too many syllables for some of the lines, so she has to kind of race through them. And it all just comes back to that chorus. And it's a knockout chorus, and you don't really care what comes before or after it at that point. And it's, it's, it's a really interesting song in a lot of different ways. And, and, and like you were saying, the main sort of difference between these two songs is that 
not, not only is there no chorus on another sunny day, there's also just not a lot of, like, there's not a lot going on melodically, really. There's like one very simple verse melody that the song never deviates from. There's no bridge, there's no chorus, there's no instrumental breakdown section. It's, if, you, if, you're, if you're an Another Sunny Day fan, it's because you either like the vibe of the song and the sort of the general feeling it, it evokes throughout, or you're really invested in the lyrics because it is very poetic and it's got these like kind of extended metaphors. It gets kind of John Dunny at parts. Like it, it's, it's an interesting song lyrically. You're in it for the chorus, you're in it for the production, you're in it for the melodic shifts and the sort of really interesting things that they do melodically. And, and there's like three or four different parts of the song that are just absolutely indelible. Like just, just parts that you, you can hear the song once and you'll remember them for the rest of your life, even though you can hear the song five million times and not remember a single part of the verses. At any no, time. I'm, I'm going to be honest. I didn't even uh, know the second line of the chorus, honestly. <laughs> the second line I got you on, but uh, all right. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm curious what's going on here with Lena. We, we, got, we got a little, little instrumental here. So here, so here's the thing. I can't pick between these two songs, which I realize is really a cop out. But here's why: it's because to me, they're both eight out of ten songs. Mm. Mm. Un- unless, unless you do the thing that's natural, which is you just put them together. Mm. They fit. Watch, watch, I will show you. Ready? Another sunny day, I met you up in the garden. You were digging plants, I dug you, beg your pardon. I took a photograph of you in the herbaceous border. You broke the heart of men and flowers and girls and trees. Hey Lloyd, I'm ready to be heartbroken. Cause I can't see farther than my own nose at this moment. At this moment. Okay. And then you're right back to it. Back to another rainy day. Yeah. You're really convinced that you could combine these songs into one full complete song. Yes. If you just, if you have the verses of Another Sunny Day plus the chorus of Hey Lord, I'm Ready to Be Heartbroken, you get a perfect song. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not, sure, my, I'm not sure. Those songs, I'm not sure those words go together. But like as we have already established, we don't really need the words to go mm-hmm. together. Yeah, or it's very clear that the final lyric of the first stanza of Another Sunny Day is "It broke the heart of men and flowers and girls and trees." It literally says it broke the heart of, and then it goes right into "Hey Lloyd, I'm ready to be heartbroken." So, kiss my ass, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> no, it works. Per, it works perfectly. This is all very persuasive, but. I, I, I think I think Lloyd's a perfect 10 out of 10, even with kind of nothing filling verses. I mean, and, and the verses are interesting if you want to read into them. But there's 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 some cool stuff going on there. I, I would never know it without actually reading the lyrics along with it. But I, it's all about Tracy Ann Campbell's voice. She has this really kind of distinctive and singular voice. It's, it's piercing. And so it's maybe a little bit thin, but there's like a lot of like depth and character to it. Like, I, I compare it to Harriet Wheeler of the Sundays. I think she's probably a little bit of a better lyricist. But it's the same sort of voice where it's like this is affecting me in a really strange way. And I can't quite put my finger on why it's doing that. It's maybe not like a traditionally, you know, powerhouse sort of singer, but there's something about the tone of it. And there's something about the way she intones the lyrics and the phrasing of it that really makes whatever she's singing about feel very, very important, even when you can't literally understand what she's saying. Yeah. For, for me, like this is like a, a clear winner. I don't, I don't really see the big deal about another sunny day. I would never have picked that to be like the third most popular song. Can you tell me what, what about the, this one in particular made it so popular? 
Like I, I couldn't find any information about it. Like I don't know. I the answer is I don't know. Um, it my, was on the Diary of a Wimpy Kid two soundtrack. <laughs> is that very? I uh, listen with Spotify. All things are possible, but I will say it could just be for, a quirk of the algorithm. Yes. All I can tell you is that it was the song that I remembered off of the Light Pursuit immediately. Um, it was the one that wound up on mixtapes for me all the time, and the reason why I liked it so much was just like. Every time you'd come around to the, the 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 verse, the new verse, it would have like a new thing. So like he'd get to like another day in June, we we'll pick eleven for football, and all of a sudden it's a pick eleven for football, right? Like, mm-hmm. and then when you come back to it later, it's it's just harmonized oohs and ahs, and like ah, between that and the the lead line, it just builds and swells in a way that's so absolutely stunning to me that it just it, again it immediately became my one of my favorite songs of that year. And is a song that I still love to this day because it just makes me feel good listening to it. Well, I mean, when you talk about the mixtape friendliness of the song, it's also very, very playlist friendly. Like, so I'm sure that helps it a ton in the streaming age where, you know, like feel good twee indie, you know, the, from the aughts. Like uh, this, this would be the first track on that playlist and, and, and you know, it does another just like it. Yeah. Like, like, like I said, if you wanted to just triangulate the Bell and Sebastian sound, another sunny day mm-hmm. would be a pretty solid pick, but it's not. It doesn't strike me as special the way that Camera Obscura's uh, "Lloyd, I'm Ready to Be Heartbroken." I don't think there's anything else you can compare. Like if you're if it's if it's Camera Obscura, to me it makes sense that it's these two. Like I guess no, no, it's a good it's a good matchup. I I see it, and we did get a lot of comments that were like, "Why this Bell and Sebastian song?" And uh, one very angry comment from a, a critic I like, getting angry at those comments. Like, what do you mean? What's special? <laughs> about this song the hell is wrong with all of you so it seems like the people who do like it like it a lot but, but I, I agree with you this does feel like kind of the um, the vanilla of Bell and Sebastian I guess like the sort of plain sort of topping free version of Bell and Sebastian especially on that album which is you know all over the place like I get why you chose this match and I think it's smart for a bunch of reasons a lot which we already discussed to me the much harder matchup would have been this versus would have been uh, would have been Lloyd versus Arab Strap because Arab, Arab Strap, that seems like the song that's sort of the standout song in their catalog to me now. Like, and it seems like the song they sort of treat as their signature song. Like, not, not only does it have, the, you know, it has the most plays on Spotify, but it's, you know, I, I saw them live you know, three or four years ago, maybe. And that was the song that they, like, they invited like people on stage to come and dance with them. I checked their set list stats. It's by far their most played song live. Like that, that seems like the song that if, like, if you're talking about like Bell and Sebastian at their absolute apex, I think that's the song to go for, even though it's not on the necessarily their apex album. Yeah, I think sort of the, I mean, the reason why I didn't pick it is simply because we try to keep it similar time period. It makes total sense, yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so much later. And so like, yeah, I would, I would have to pick like something off yeah. of the, the first, like, like 80s fan or something, you know. And that's um, a, yet another song named after an obscure indie band. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. It, it sure, it sure is. And also Arab Strap, it means, that sure means something. I did not know this before we started lo- looking this one up either. Apparently, Airstrap is like a cock ring or something yeah. like that. Which, which makes, it such up. A, makes it such a perfect indie pop song. Like that, that combination of like wistful title plus kind of like hidden sexual reference plus even more hidden reference to like obscure older indie band. Like that's yeah. like the big, that's the big three for an indie pop song title, I think. Uh, yeah, that's just, for, a, that's for just a special song. Like that's just the song that kind of I think has the most feeling to it. It's the one that really kind of stands above the rest of their catalog to me. 
So that's your, you would say that's your favorite Bell and Sebastian song. It may. Or, I also have a really soft spot for "Get Me Away from Here." I'm dying. Like that was probably the first song of theirs that I loved. Like I, I remember when I was in high school, I had a friend that was even more into them than I was, and like as a birthday present for him once, like I, I wrote the lyrics to that song on Magic Mark on a T-shirt for them to wear. Uh, which is like the sweetest <laughs> thing I've ever done, probably. But uh, that's it. It's like you put a zine on a shirt. Uh, very on brand for that moment in time. But in any event, like that, that song is also kind of magical to me. But I, I think Arab Strap, like that, that makes sense as like the, the concert encore. I mean, that makes sense as the song that like the one you came and you would be really disappointed if they didn't play when you saw them live. Yeah, for me, it was get away, get me away from here. I'm dying, or possibly, and I, I realize this is not a uh, pick now, but. For me, it would have been like Dylan in the movies. That's like my favorite song by them. On your own, if they follow you. So good. What a what a banger. But, Again, like but that, that has no streams on, on. It's nowhere near close to their top I, tracks, apparently. I, uh, I didn't know but this. Like because Dylan I, in the movies is great. And I, I would say actually um, probably kind of those three in a row, like Dylan in the movies, Fox in the Snow and Get Me Away From Here, I'm Dying are like a, like a real beautiful trinity of songs. Versus Camera Obscura, which I don't know, is it, it might be one of those things where like the catalog, the Bell and Sebastian catalog just like blows this other band away. But Camera Obscura has that one song that might oh disagree higher. completely. Um, I mean, maybe there is that one that stands out, um, mm-hmm. but I love the entirety of Let's Get Out of This Country. I actually don't know that there's a single song on that that I don't at least yeah. like. It's a really good album, but I, I agree with Todd that this is the song. Like it, you, you can you can only know one camera obscure song. It, it is not the one with their uh, most uh, streams. First Aid is a really good song too. That that that's also like like that, that would did be surprise a, me. That, it surprised me a little bit too. But that, and that's a, that's a worthy quasi signature song as well. But it's not Lloyd. Lloyd is the song. And and I, I think like if you were to do, I don't know, like the best indie songs of the 21st century type list, I think everyone would sort of default to Lloyd. Like that's, that's the song that I think they're still most associated with. Even if French Navy is technically a little bit more popular. Yeah. Underachievers, maybe less so, but like if I'm doing, if I honestly like sat down and say like, do I really know these albums? I would say biggest blue is hi-fi. Let's get out of this country in my modeling career. I really like all three of those. Really? I think let's get out of this country is the most like easily accessible. Like I listen to it and immediately like get it. I like, I, I know those songs, even if I like, even if I said again, same mm-hmm. thing, like here are the lyrics. Do you know this song? I would be like, no idea. But if you started playing it, I would then I'd be like, Oh yes, of course I know the song. I've heard the song a million times, but yeah, I think Bell and Sebastian, the difference is that something like boy with the mm-hmm. Irish trap or, or if you're feeling sinister, like, boy, I really know those mm-hmm. songs. I really like if you said if you said like name the lyrics, I'd be like, yeah, I, I know them. Sure. If you show me the lyrics, I would definitely know them. I want to shout out the organ intro to this song. Like I, I was trying to think of what it reminded me of. And it's actually another song that I've talked with the two of you before on this podcast. Got a little freebird to it. I, I like not, not, that I I'm comparing, not that I'm comparing those two songs, but it's the same sort of thing where like the second that organ hits, you're just like, oh, this fucking they song. Can do a decent. I bet they could do a decent free bird. I, I would they, be happy to hear it. I don't know. I was l- listening to their top tracks on Spotify and they do a pretty decent, uh, tougher than the rest by Springsteen. I, I was also listening they've to been that. Meaning, they've been meaning to come back. Um, I know the plan was to put it on a new album and then COVID kind of slowed them down as slowed down a lot of people. Um, but in theory, there is a, a new camera obscure album somewhere out in the offing. And I know that they did, um, 
there was a compilation record um, called Making Money that came out. It was a part of Record Store Day, but is on um, Spotify if you want to listen to it. And there's some good stuff on there. Yeah, that, that song, Making Money, is pretty cool. So I heard that for the first time today, too. Uh, but I, I have like a very specific favorite moment from the song. I'm, I'm curious if, if you if you if y'all can sort of guess what it is. If there's like one moment in the song that really stands out to you as like a, a particularly memorable moment. For me, it's just like the, that first time you hear the chorus. I, okay. I mean, which, which is also which is also like spectacular. But for me, it's it's the first time. It's after the the the, the, the breakdown where they bring back the organ part for the second time, and then the riff returns. But it's a little bit more minor than it's been throughout the entire song so oh, far. Oh yeah, the yeah, and then it instantly resolves after that, and that's so clever. I don't know who came up with that. I, I was trying to like dig in to see if I could find like a making of Lloyd I'm Ready to Be Heartbroken YouTube or something. I could not find it. But that little, like, it, it almost sounds like a mistake, but it adds so much emotional complexity to the, mel- to the melody of the song. And, and then they kind of return to it here and there, and they sort of keep you off kilter with it. It's so, so smart. And I, I wish I, I, w- I would love to know if that was like a mistake to like just leave it in, or if, they, if they, somebody came up with that, like, like let's, let's do this to kind of keep people like interested and sort of on their toes with this song. That, that, that makes the second half of the song so much more powerful that they have that little sort of, that part that needs to be resolved, uh, and, and, and that they eventually do it. It's great. All right. Are we ready for the categories? The four questions? I have to say, actually, um, unsurprisingly, having that song means that we're actually substantive and kind of keep to task. Um, Not always the way, but this time. Uh, But, you know, just in case we didn't, these questions are really firm things up, make us really secure in our answers. Uh, First question, one of these songs is going to go away forever, gone. And the other one is going to stay. Uh, remain the the memory of mankind uh, for eternity. For the culture, uh, which one has to stay? Camera Obscura? Like, that seems like the obvious answer to me. Yeah, there, there's 30 songs that can take another 90 days place. But... Yeah, like, Bell and Sebastian has so many, many, many songs that fill another sunny day spot to me. Although, I, you know, if Dr. David Thorpe, if you are listening, I'm curious why this song is so special to you because I really like your work and I am want to know why you were so angry in my comments that all the people who said it another sunny day wasn't special. I'm sorry, Dr. David Thorpe of something awful. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Uh, Uh, Yes. Okay. I'm a fan too. Yep. Anyway. Yeah. I I think that's right. I mean, I love another Sunday day, but when it comes down to it, um, if you take that song out of the Bell and Sebastian catalog, nothing really massive is lost. I love that song, but like, there's a lot of other songs of theirs I can put on a mixtape and be perfectly satisfied with. Uh, whereas, yeah, I mean, like, Camera Obscura, like, what are they without that song? Which is a mean thing to say. I realize what a backhanded compliment this is. But, like, that band needs that song. And the world needs that song. Yes. Easy one. All right. Question Question number two. You can be around soup to nuts for the creation of one and only one of these two songs. To know the the details, and weirdly, I think we kind of went into this. Um, which one would you want to be in on? Uts, would you say that it's Camera Obscura, just so you could find out the answer to your question? That's actually a great point. I, was <laughs> yeah. like, I, did, I didn't have an answer before you mentioned that just now, but I think uh, I, I guess so. I, I think that I don't know. I, I really I really know so little about the creation of either of these two songs that I, I don't really know. Like, well, was this a particularly explosive moment internally for Bell and Sebastian? Like, a lot of like like. You know, descent from the, the string section of Bell and Sebastian. They, they, they were felt like they were getting squeezed out of the group. I don't, I don't know. Just in terms, like I, I think the production of the song is just so beautiful that I would love to see it kind of come together in the studio. I don't even know that Bjorn of uh, Peter Bjorn and John arranged it. That's super interesting to me too. Uh, that's sort of like a, kind of handing off the torch there. 
just just to watch kind of every piece of the song fall into place that would that would be a pretty special experience for me my instinctive answer is also camera obscura but like bell and sebastian are just so shrouded in secrecy yes. that it i am kind of curious like I could be like the first person who knows anything about this band that isn't in the band (laughs) or like who they are and like what. But do you think that's a purposeful thing on their part or do you think they're just intrinsically not that interesting as both individuals and collective? Well, I mean, like they, they refused interviews for the longest time. Right. Am I, I think I read that. He's a really interesting character. Did you know that he, um, so when he, when he got the chronic um, fatigue syndrome, when he got the chronic on uh, vinyl. <laughs> when he got the chronic what? Clothes of Narnia. Yeah. Uh, what he did was, no, it was he went back to church and like he had like somebody like put like lay hands on him and shit. And then, oh, wow. and then he said, then I felt much worse after that. And then I got better. Mm. <laughs> so if you listen, there is there is some stuff that is kind of in reference to that. And there is just a, of, of, of the church is in the music. So I think that's weird and interesting. Uh, I don't know when it is that he first admitted that that was true, but like, what a, what an odd thing. You wouldn't be like, man, you know what that twee artist really loves? Jesus. I, you know, like it's just, so there's something that doesn't really. I don't know. I, I kind of always felt like this kind of Scottish pop had like that undercurrent of churchiness to it. I mean, like fold your hands, you walk like mm. a peasant. Well, one, yes. of, one of them's literally named churches. So there you go. It's a, a great point. Also, the organ. Yeah, the, the, the organ's a big church staple. Yeah, it does feel like subtextually Catholic to me in a way I don't really know how to describe. But so utterly alien to me that I can't. It's if I'm in a way mm-hmm. fascinating that I like this music so much. But yeah, uh, all yeah. right, that's a that's a fair point. All right, uh, Megan the Stallion. She's gonna get up to Night of Hot Girl shit and she's gonna put this on the playlist. She's gonna have a mixtape. <laughs> Meg's making a mixtape and she's going to put one of these two bands on there and one of these two songs in particular. Which, never has this question been less apt. <laughs> which 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 one? Which one's Meg listening to? I don't know. Another sunny day makes for a good day at the beach, I think. But I don't know. What are we even fucking talking about? No, no, I'm going to put my foot down on this and I'm going to say unquestionably, Lloyd, I'm ready to be heartbroken. Again, yeah, another, like, another another sunny day is just not hot girl shit music. That that is very pleasant music. That is that is like okay, we're going on a picnic sort of music. It is not hot girl shit yeah. music. There is a vibe, a very specific kind of locked in vibe. To Lloyd, right? Oh yeah. Like it's got. It literally really- says, "I'm ready." <laughs> oh, that's so you're yeah. ready for you're ready ready for some shit tonight. That that's good uh, prep music. It, it's it's got a or real kind of momentum for. to it. Like there's there's yeah. really. There, there's really something there in terms of the, the, the sort of pregame feeling that I, I think Meg can relate to on some level. I just like that we're making this mixtape for Meg. <laughs> <laughs> she's a longtime listener of the show, and she's so grateful. Uh, you're welcome. So, and now now we get to the one that I feel Bell and Sebastian deserves to win. And yeah. this is the most important question of all time, not just mm. of the show. William Shatner, uh, man about town, uh, equestrian, captain, Singer, we're gonna give it to him. He's gonna do a Shatner version of one and only one of these two songs. Which one of these songs must be shot upon, and why is it another sunny day? Well, sunny day certainly gives him much more to work with, and I, I'm very curious to know how he pronounces herbaceous. Uh. <laughs> I just yeah. want to talk about licking somebody's eye. Yeah, I mean, your dark mascara bids me to historical deeds. It's it's, it's obviously not special. I don't know, like. 
it's not as close as you guys are making it seem because I feel like he could really explode on the, the, the title line of Lloyd, I'm ready to be heartbroken. I think he I don't could deny put that, some but, really but over, overall, it. the lyrics of, of Another Sunny Day are a lot weirder than you would think if you just listened to it for the first time. There's just a lot to chew on there. Uh, yeah. I think it's, I, for me, it's got to go. It's Playing go for our them. lives, the referee gives us fuck all. See? Yes. Even that, yeah. which is pretty, pretty mellow for them. For some of the weird lyrics in there. Anyway, uh, all right. So, yeah, that, so, one's a, that one's a clear uh, Bell and Sebastian win right there. Yeah. So it's three to one. Mm-hmm. Good golly. Um, now we go to the most important part of the show, usually. This time it's going to be a lot of people saying, why did you pick these? But <laughs> I, I'm going to skip those. <laughs> okay, there were a lot of those. And, and, yeah. and hopefully now that we've been talking for an hour plus, the answer has become clear. Um, uh, maybe, you'll, maybe you'll have changed your mind. Who knows? Here are our reader comments. I pulled a couple of these off of Twitter because we've got some good ones there too. Okay, here we go. Jason, uh, if I'm mispronouncing this, I'm sorry. Jason Josephus writes, remember that time I gave Bell and Sebastian album a 0.8 on Pitchfork? Oh, wow, that's <laughs> right. I do remember that. <laughs> yeah, a couple of their albums got absolutely panned on Pitchfork, including Arab Strap, which I'm sure reads very interestingly in retrospect. Yeah, we got some... Interesting responses from actual critics on this one. And we got the actual guy who gave Bell and Sebastian an 0.8 on Pitchfork that you can't find that uh, review anymore unless you dive deep into the archives. That's huge, man. I'm so glad y'all got him as a comment on this one. That's that's awesome. Yes, we do. And uh, this was like back in like 1998, like when the internet was new and Pitchfork wasn't really a thing yet. And they they were just reviewing whatever and, I think it was like they gave Safe Ferris like a 9.0 or something like that. And then now <laughs> Bell and Sebastian can look forward to a lifetime of like very polite 7.0s to 7.5s for the rest of their career. Like that, 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 that's that just sure is right. On, yeah. We did not even talk about I I, I surely uh, I went to the record store many times in the last couple of weeks and their new album is there for me to buy on vinyl. And I did not do that because I listened to it and it's fine. It's good. I actually liked it more than I expected to, but I, I will say I did not know it existed. It's like coming out near two weeks ago until doing practice podcast. I I looked up. Uh, they did give a good review to Life Pursuit. Uh, mm. Got an eight point five and a, a BNM. Best new music. Also from Twitter, and uh, it's unpronounceable. At Hodgesarg says, "My thoughts about Scottish indie pop." is that Orange Juice and the titular Lloyd Cole would be a more interesting wow. matchup and even more obscure for more indie crud points. <laughs> I think that was also on Patreon. I think we, I think that might have showed up in both places. All right. Well, they were correct. The, the Edwin McCain versus Lloyd Cole thing would have uh, racked up uh, so much points that don't matter. I, I do want to get the call when, when y'all do the, uh, the Another Sunny Day, You Should All Be Murdered versus The Field Mice is Sensitive uh, song versus song. Like that, that one's going to oh be an all-timer. Oh, can't, I can't. I, I can't wait to go off on a weird trembling blue stars tirade. <laughs> We're talking about all these bands that I only know about through the two of you guys. So, <laughs> all right, Christopher Mars writes, Megan Thee Stallion did not sign up for this bullshit. <laughs> I'm telling you, we, we got we got to get a copy of Let's Get Out of This Country in Meg's hands. I, I am confident she will be an easy convert. Yeah. All right. Josie writes, I had to listen to both before voting, and I can now definitively say that neither of these songs pair well with hockey. I don't know why you would do that. What do, what do you listen to these songs while watching? Well, you watch What's football, it? for sure. Mm. By, by football, you mean soccer? <laughs> yes, that's what I meant. Yeah. 
Cricket, maybe tennis. Tennis would be good, actually. Tennis would be good. Oh yeah, this is absolutely tennis music. There, there was even there was even, obviously you're 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 watching the stars of track and field. <laughs> uh, there was there was also the band tennis, which is which is very much a post uh, camera obscure sort of band. So. Perhaps if you are watching uh, a Mets game twenty years ago, <laughs> watch Piazza New York catcher do his thing. Uh, Jacob Ailson writes, "I think I finally realized that I hate twee music." So thanks for that, Lena. You're welcome. You're, you're accomplishing the opposite of what you're doing, what you were trying for, I guess. It's not for as everybody. As long as, it's you, not as, for long everybody. as you gave it a chance. That's yes. all that matters. Yeah. All right. Bo Dre writes, I'm writing about soccer referee shortages and worked four games yesterday, but Bell and Sebastian managed to get a referee for a quick pickup game, and they're still going to complain? <laughs> yeah. Piss off. <laughs> that's, that, that, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yes. Jesse Alora writes, the opening of Another Sunny Day is offensively jangly, and that's coming from a huge fan of Johnny Marr and Peter Buck. Still, I gave it my vote. And then someone added, Russet Burbank adds, I was going to say that there's no such thing as offensively jangly, but then I listened to it. I guess if you were to find something offensively jangly, this would be it. But uh, yeah. Yeah, um, I have no idea what offensively jangly even means. He's like, I myself am I'm offended by your offense. All right. One last one. Truman Deree writes, imagine having your heart broken by someone named Lloyd. Tragic. <laughs> I don't see what's wrong with that. But there we go. Thank you for listening to Song vs. Song. We got one thing left. Who do you think won? Who do you think won this? Uh, who do you think had? You know, that's a hard one. I couldn't imagine. Mm. Hey, like, Bell and Sebastian has more people's hearts, you know? But it went back and forth. I can tell you that because there weren't a lot of votes. And this is a real every vote counted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised. I, w- I would think that Don Sebastian would run away with this just based on name recognition. I feel like a lot of people don't even know who Cameron Sierra are. Yeah, it's literally in the name. Uh, how, by how much? Uh, I, I mean, well, the, I guess if, if it went back and forth, I'll keep it modest. I'll say 60-40. All right. Lena? I think it's even less than that. I think it's I think it's a real uh, four, 45 to 55. For Bell and Sebastian? No. No. Oh, you're going the other way. Guy. Wow. All right, for a total of 180 to 200, just 20 votes. Wow. So 53 to 47% split. Our winner is the correct one. Lloyd, I'm ready to be heartbroken. Wow. So <laughs> continuing my streak of never once predicting the correct winner on this podcast. Uh, well, that the, bravo to your audience, man. Absolutely. Underberger, tell us where uh, we can find you. Uh, you can you can find me on on Twitter, I guess, today, at AUGetOffMyGold. I, I write about uh, music, and I edit other people at Billboard. Right about the Philadelphia 76ers, if that's what you're into. God bless. Uh, and yeah, ne- next time, next time I'm on one of these pods, I, I want the uh, I want the call for like the easy lover versus man eater one. I, I, you, you <laughs> okay. The, the anti tweet direction for the next one. All right. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, if you like us, support us on Patreon. We could use every dollar. And if you give us a dollar, just one dollar a month, you get our entire backlog of bonus episodes. Uh, this week, uh, this month, we're doing Encanto, and every month we do another movie based on what you vote on. So thank you very much. You ready for the next episode, Lena? Yes. All right, it's going to be a little less obscure. We are going to be doing Fly by Sugar Ray versus What I Got by Sublime. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I, I that's not a tough one for me, but... Uh, it's a tough one for me. Oh, These okay. songs are very, very near and dear to my heart. Well, we'll see. Yes. Well, now I'm curious. I, mean, I, don't, I don't practice Santeria. I ain't got no crystal ball, so it could really go any kind of way. 
All right. We will see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye.